as far as Moshon. Everywhere the young knight went, he heard the same mocking refrain, always followed by a wry, sarcastic chuckle. As far as Moshon, he didn't even make it to Constantinople. In April, the proud young knight had set out on a glorious pilgrimage, the most glorious of all pilgrimages. In the company of a great host of knights and peasants and all manner of people, saints and sinners alike, he had traveled east to Jerusalem. Well, for the most part. After all, there was no shortage of infidels in the land of the Franks. He'd done his best to avenge Christ against the Jews of the Rhineland, coating his sword with their blood and lining his pockets with their silver. After all, God rewards those who work his wonders. And what could be more wondrous than the destruction of those who do not believe in him? And despite their jeering, he had gone as far east as possible. Hungary was meant to be a land of Christians, but they had proven themselves to be foes of Christ and his armies. Instead of the warm reception fellow members in Christ owed those who risked their lives in his holy name, the Hungarians had been petty and intransigent. They'd slaughtered Christ's armies and scattered the knights. They could laugh all they want, though he'd failed to complete his pilgrimage, and the summer had been one of much disappointment, it had also been fruitful. His coffers were filled with plundered Jewish silver, and he knew God would repay him with some measure of recompense for smiting the non-believers, both in the Rhineland and in Hungary. Still, when he heard that more armies were setting out, led by the great princes of Europe, he saw a chance for redemption, with such powerful magnates as leaders. The young knight was certain to find glory in the east. He'd show them. He'd show them all. This time, he'd be going a lot farther than Moshon. Hello, and welcome to History of the Uchimer, episode 2.9, Gloomy Summer. So today the Peasants' Crusade chugs along. By October of 1096, the armed pilgrimage organized by Peter the Hermit was in ruins. We actually heard about how this happened back in episode 1.12. The forces of the Sultan of Rum, Kilij Arslan, destroyed Peter the Hermit's army at Civitat in western Anatolia. But this is only part of the story. Peter the Hermit's armed pilgrimage was not one organized expedition. It was made up of waves and smaller contingents. Each one of these had their own fun little adventure east. In fact, only a portion of the armies that set out in the spring of 1096 even made it to Civitat. This was because the road to Anatolia was not an easy one. The forces of the Peasants' Crusade traveled on foot from the land of the Franks to Constantinople and they followed the traditional pilgrim's path, which passed first through Hungary before entering the territory controlled by the Byzantine Roman Empire. Hungary was a bit unique in geopolitical terms. Though they were Latin Christian, they seemed to have been wholly uninterested in this whole armed pilgrimage thing. Whatever crusading disease was infecting those in France and Germany, the Hungarians seemed to have been immune, but not unaffected. They would prove to be the first obstacle on the road to Jerusalem, and for many crusaders, this was an obstacle they wouldn't be able to overcome. Before we get to the events of summer 1096, let's take a beat to talk about what kind of a kingdom was encountered by the first crusaders. So, what is a Hungary? Well, first of all, Hungary is an exonym. It's not and never has been the native term that Hungarians use. They call themselves Magyar, anglicized as Magyar. In plural, that's Magyarok. And Hungary the country is known as Magyarosag, Magyarland. Nyelv means tongue, so their language is called Magyarnyelv, so it's just Magyar tongue. Disclaimer that I don't speak any Hungarian, so my pronunciation of it is just an approximation. Sorry, Hungarians. So where does the term hungry come from then? Well, it's actually Turkic. The Oguers were a Turkic group. 
Their name is very similar to that of another Turkic group we've talked about before, the Oguz. Both words probably meant tribe or something similar in an earlier Proto-Turkic language. A group of Ogurs was known as an Onogur. On means ten, so just ten tribes, Onogur. This word Onogur then passed through Bulgarian and finally into Greek as Ungroi. From there, it made its way into Latin and other languages of Western Europe. An H was added due to a false association with the Huns, who had once made their home in what is now Hungary, or nearby. But wait just a second. Why use a Turkic name for the Magyar? Well, the Magyar have pretty much always been associated with Turks. Once again, language is really useful for understanding this ethnic group. The Magyar language... Majanyev is a Uralic language. Other Uralic languages include Finnish, Estonian, and the Sami languages. The original homeland of these languages is somewhere around the Ural Mountains, hence Uralic. Often the Uralic languages are referred to as just Finno-Ugric, which includes all the Uralic languages except some more distant ones spoken in Siberia. Despite the origin of their language in the Ural Mountains, the Magyar became a distinct people when they left the mountains and journeyed into the vast Eurasian steppe. When they entered the steppe, sometime around the first millennium BC, the Magyar mingled with and absorbed other steppe nomads, some Indo-European groups, uh, particularly speakers of Iranian languages, who left their loanwords in the language, but also, predominantly, Turkic groups. Though they maintained their Uralic language, the early Hungarians were shaped to a great degree by Turkic culture. By around the 9th century, when the first few mentions of Hungarians start to appear in the historical record, this name was applied to them because they were indistinguishable from any other Turkic groups. The two literate societies that recorded their arrival, the Byzantine Romans and the Muslims, thought they were just another Turkic group. It actually wasn't until the 20th century that the debate was settled as to whether Hungarian was a Uralic or Turkic language. Apart from the novelty of their language, the first Magyars were textbook Turkic nomads. They practiced a variety of animist and shamanist religions or belief systems, all deridingly labeled pagan by both Christian and Muslim outsiders. Some among them had probably picked up perhaps idiosyncratically mutated forms of Christianity or Islam or even Judaism as they seemed to have spent a while in the orbit of the Khazar Khaganate, of which the elite were Jewish. And their relationship with settled societies was abrasive, to put it lightly. The early Hungarians were raiders, and particularly brutal ones, if we're to believe the sources. Though other groups of the 9th century were raiders, like the Vikings of the North, the Hungarians seemed to have brought with them from the steppe a type of total war. They would massacre entire communities and burn whole villages to the ground instead of just looting them. And like all steppe nomads, efforts to combat them were stymied by their incredible horseback riding skills and their Hawkeye-esque archery skills. As well as such time-honored tactics like the feigned retreat, in which horse archers would pretend to flee, enticing the enemy to follow after them only to lure this foe into a deadly trap. The Hungarians first arrived in the region we now think of as Hungary around 862 AD. The Franks record an attack on their eastern flank by a group known as the Ungri, who they had never encountered before. The Hungarians managed to solidify their position in Eastern Europe by allying with various external powers both the Franks and the Byzantines, as these two empires tried to control the Bulgarians and Moravians of the region. A chain of migrations seems to have contained them to the Carpathian Basin and cut them off from direct contact with the steppe. Far off to the east, uh, the Samanids, you remember them, right? A Persian dynasty that took over after the Abbasid Caliphate crumbled. Yeah, you remember. Well, the Samanids launched attacks against the Turkic group to their north, known as the Uzes. The Uzes then moved west to escape these attacks. This brought them into conflict with the Pechenegs, a Turkic group we talked about a lot last season and who we'll be talking about again because of their interaction with the Byzantine Romans. Well, the Pechenegs then moved west themselves 
and they not only started to rub up against the Byzantines, but after allying with the Bulgarians, they enacted a brutal assault on the Hungarians, which pushed the Hungarians further west into the territory we now think of as Hungary. The Hungarians now made their home in the core of what would one day be the country of Hungary. But they were still steppe nomad raiders at heart, and throughout the early 10th century, they raided in northern Italy and eastern Germany. They also raided to the south, sometimes getting into it with the Bulgarians or the Byzantines. Hungarian raids into Germany, still basically East Francia at this point, came to an end with the rise of the Saxons. Henry, Duke of Saxony, defeated them in 933, and then in 955, his son Otto, the first Holy Roman Emperor of the Germans, so badly crushed them that even though raids against other peoples continued for some decades, it seems that this defeat led to the Hungarians abandoning the steppe-raider lifestyle that had been the core of their society for thousands of years. To the Hungarian leadership, it was now evident that the times, they were a-changin', and the Hungarians had better change along with them. It's a bit unclear what exactly Hungarian rule looked like around 955, but it seems to have been dominated by one particular family, the Arpadians, descendants of a quasi-mythical ruler named Arpad, whose exact role is unclear. Hungarian rule appears to have been somewhat tribal and nebulous. The early Arpadians were known as Grand Dukes, or Princes, and appear to not have had an unquestionable right to rule but rather function as the leaders of a coalition of tribes. And succession seems to have been based on seniority, that is, the senior most member of the family inherited the title. By 972, though, this had changed. The Arpadian Grand Duke Geza had consolidated sole rule over the Hungarians. To avoid challenges to his authority, he carried out a brutal purge of his entire family, the rest of the Arpadians. This removed not only challenges to his rule, but would make his son's succession almost a given. But not quite. To truly consolidate his rule, Geza knew that systematic changes were needed. And by that, I mean Christian conversion. He was sandwiched between two rising Christian empires, the Holy Roman Empire to his west and the Byzantine Roman Empire to his southeast. Though the Hungarians had often established close diplomatic ties with the Byzantines and would continue to do so, Geza decided to turn west to find God. He allowed the entry of Latin Christian bishops, and he himself was baptized. But despite overseeing the nominal conversion of the Magyars to Christianity, Geza's was a very surface-level conversion, and he himself continued to make pagan offerings for the rest of his days. His son, however, was a different story. Born Vaik, the first king of Hungary, is better remembered by his baptismal name, Istvan, anglicized as Stephen, Saint Stephen. He was actually canonized by our old friend, Pope Gregory VII, in 1083. Istvan inherited his father's title as Grand Prince in 997, after defeating the only other member of the royal dynasty left after his father's purge, and then mutilating his dead rival's body and publicly displaying it. With no one whose body wasn't hanging over the ramparts in separate chunks left to contest his rule, he was crowned King of Hungary, either on Christmas Day of the year 1000 or the first day of the year 1001. His coronation seems to have been backed up by both the Pope and the German Emperor, who were allies at the time. Interestingly, in Hungarian, his title was Kirai, which is actually the name they gave to Charlemagne. Charlemagne's name is also the source of the Slavic title and last name Kral, which also means king. Much how Julius Caesar's name became the German title Kaiser and the Russian title Tsar, Charlemagne's influence over the newly formed states of Europe was such that he was seen as the model of kingship. The first king of Hungary, Istvan, seems to have been a successful ruler, and he developed a capable and robust state that knew how to deal with the imperial powers surrounding it. The only issue was, as usual, succession. From Istvan's death in 1038 until 1096, actually, Hungarian succession would be contested by various members of the Arpadian dynasty. Underneath the surface of 
brothers killing brothers and cousins killing cousins was an undercurrent of ideological conflict. There were still some who clung to the old ways, which were pagan, and preferred a weaker grand duke or prince over a king. But there were also some who wanted Hungary to be more like the states around it, Christian and with a powerful king. By the end of the century, these debates had been settled in favor of the progressives. The last pagan uprising was crushed in 1061, and during the last few decades of the 11th century, the king would assume total control of the state. A state that no longer resembled the nomadic tribes of old, but rather an established territory. This transformation would be sealed by the last three rulers of the 11th century, starting with Geza. No, not the Grand Prince Geza, but his great-great-great-nephew. Maybe with another great thrown in there for good measure. Geza was a son of King Bela, cousin to King Solomon, and the grandson of Vazul, who was the cousin of Istvan, the first king of Hungary, and had been blinded by Istvan. Does that all sound really confusing? Because it should. Hungarian succession during the 11th century was a mess. Now, Geza was a pretty important figure. He's appeared tangentially in our podcast, because he was the king who received the crown of Hungary, at least the Byzantine portion. I mentioned this in episode 1.12. The Roman emperor Mikhail Lukas, following the Battle of Manzikert and the deposition of Romanos Diogenes, had tried really hard to cement alliances with his neighbors. One of these neighbors was Geza, king of Hungary. Geza had been sent a Roman bride and a Roman crown. It actually seems like this crown might have been for his bride. It was a woman's crown. The images on it demonstrate the relationship that Mikhail hoped to establish with Geza. There's an image of the emperor Mikhail Dukas looking superior to the Hungarian king, Geza, who's labeled as Geobitsas Pistos Krales Turkias. That is Greek for Geza, faithful crawl of the land of the Turks. As I mentioned, crawl is the Slavic word for king. It's derived from the Latin name of Charlemagne, Karolus. The Greek word Krales is just a Hellenized version of the same name. And it's used here because the Hungarians used the same term in Hungarian, Kirai. And also probably because as a title, it didn't have the same prestige as other terms like the native Vasilevsh. Oh, and they call Hungary the land of the Turks because, well, why learn a new name for steppe peoples if you already have one lying about? Now Geza had actually originally asked the Pope for a crown. Pope Gregory VII, but Gregory VII had asked that Geza agree to papal sovereignty in return. No way that was going to happen. Geza died in 1077. He left behind two sons, Kalman and Almos, but both of them were minors, so his brother had little trouble taking the throne. His brother was Laszlo, known in English as Saint Ladislaus. As that name might imply, he was kind of a big deal. Popular tradition remembers Laszlo as a pious warrior night king. One of the most famous stories about him centers around his expedition to free a Hungarian girl who had been captured by a steppe nomad raider. He's like the Hungarian King Arthur, basically. Oh yeah, and by the late 11th century, steppe nomad raiders were now the villains in Hungarian stories. Laszlo also maneuvered his way into ownership of the neighboring region of Croatia. The problem was that Croatia had recently declared itself to be subject to the Pope. It was, after all, just a short boat ride away from the Papal States. Laszlo ignored this little detail and instead named himself King of Croatia. This was around 1091, and so during the early reign of Pope Urban II. At this time, Urban didn't even have possession of Rome, so somehow forcing Laszlo to hand over Croatia? Yeah, that was going to be tough. All he could really do was complain, and all Laszlo had to do was make an alliance with the German Emperor Henry IV and decide that he would support the anti-pope Clement III instead. As a side note, the fact that Laszlo named himself King of Croatia instead of just assuming that his title as King of Hungary was sufficient to rule over this new territory means two things. First, that Hungary had a defined territory. Laszlo was king of the territory of Hungary not the leader of a group of tribes known as the Hungarians, as his predecessors seemed to have been. Second, that Hungary was now experimenting with Imperium, the subjugation of foreign groups, united by the figure of the king, but still considered distinct nations. 
As is tradition, though, for all his wins, Laszlo still had to deal with succession. Now, he didn't have any sons of his own. He did have a daughter who we'll be meeting in the distant future. And he had his nephews. However, in his opinion, the eldest, Kalman, was not king material. Definitely not. Kalman appears to have had some physical handicaps. According to the sources, he was half-blind, hunchbacked, he walked with a limp, and he stammered. So Lazo decided that the boy would be raised for a career in the church, perhaps as a bishop. Instead of Kalman, Laszlo chose to nominate his younger nephew, Almos, as king. But life has a funny way of working out. Now, I do feel compelled to point out that Almos' line will end up ruling Hungary eventually, after Almos and his son, the future King Bela II, are blinded by Kalman. That's just how Hungarian politics worked, man. Anyway, a lot of our sources are from later on, so their portrayal of Kalman is colored by the fact that they were descendants of his brother, who Kalman had had blinded. Saying that Kalman was not even supposed to become king, it was actually almost all along, well, we can see why they would have wanted to portray things that way. And physical handicaps of the sort associated with Kalman are a common trope in the Middle Ages, and not a positive one. So it's hard to know what exactly was going on there. But what we do know for sure is that when Laszlo died in 1095, it wasn't almost who took the throne. Somehow, it's not really clear, Kalman did. Almos appears to not have been happy about this, and like I mentioned, Kalman would eventually end up blinding his baby brother, and his nephew, the future king, Bela II. Despite Lasso's hesitation about him and his lack of fraternal amity, Kalman proved to be a capable ruler. He's known in Hungarian as Kunyvesh Kalman, which literally means like Kalman of the books, but is usually translated as Kalman the book lover or Kalman the learned. This probably has some connection with the fact that he was originally raised to be a member of the clergy, and so he would have been literate and well-read. Anyway, I'm just going to call him Kalman the Nerd. I mean, the sources go out of their way to point out that he was not physically impressive, so definitely not a jock, and then they call him a bookworm? The guy was a stereotypical 80s teen flick nerd. Now, Kalman was crowned as king in spring of 1096. I don't have the exact date, but it can have been more than a few weeks before the first crusading army under Walter Sanzavoir arrived at the Hungarian border on May 8th. Try to put yourself in his position. Kalman was not the designated successor, and just a few weeks into his rule, massive armies and trains of pilgrims started streaming into his kingdom. So we're going to view the events of the summer and early fall of 1096 from his perspective. Kalman the Nerd was an unproven and to some extent unwanted king. The sudden arrival of the First Crusaders would prove to be a challenge even for seasoned rulers like Alexios Komnenos. There was no reason to expect that Hungary wouldn't become the staging ground for the types of massacres these armies had already carried out in the Rhineland. But Kalman was calm, man. He handled the situation amazingly well. Walter Sansevoir, who was likely acting as an advance guard for the huge force under Peter the Hermit, which was only days away, was able to negotiate safe passage through Hungarian territory. Galman also granted them access to Hungarian markets. In our modern day, it'd be weird for a country to not accept foreign commerce. But this was an age of scarcity. If foreigners came and bought up all your food, you would starve. It was also early summer, the final few months before the fall harvest, which in the Middle Ages were often the hungriest months of the year. There was a reason that Pope Urban had set August 15th as the date of departure. By starting their campaign in late summer, the armies of the First Crusade would have found local communities they passed through much more willing to sell off excess food from the recent harvest. But hey, when you're drinking the Kool-Aid, you don't worry about such things as supply. Uh, I guess drinking the Flavor-Aid. I think that joke has worn out its welcome. Anyway, it's a testament to his military and diplomatic skill that Kalman was able to ferry both Walter Sansevoir and his army through Hungarian territory and to the border town of Zemun, now a suburb of Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, but at that time a separate town under Hungarian control. It lay on the banks of the Sava River, 
which now flows through Belgrade, but was at that time the border between not only Zemun and Belgrade, but Hungary and the Byzantine Roman Empire. By the way, I find it kind of funny, and maybe you will too, that both Albert of X and William of Tyre, who was probably copying Albert's mistake, confuse the Sava River for the Morava River. I mean, they're both tributaries of the Danube, but the Morava's over by, like, Poland and Austria. Keep that in mind for when we get to descriptions of regions that aren't even in Europe. These guys really didn't know where the fuck they were. Anyway, most of Walter's army crossed the Sava without incident, and, well, then they were Alexis's problem. Kalman washed his hands of them entirely. However, 16 men hung back and tried to rob a local marketplace. The Zemunians captured them, stripped them of their weapons and their clothes, and sent their naked asses across the river to Belgrade. Then, they hung these men's arms and clothes on the walls of Zemun as a warning to any other crusaders who might try to take advantage of them. All of this apparently really ticked off Walter Sansavoir, but we'll get back to him later. Albert of X, by the way, says that these 16 men were just trying to buy arms when the wicked Hungarians robbed them. This is very unlikely, and the fact that they displayed these guys' arms and clothes doesn't really make a lot of sense if you buy this story. Why would they advertise their thievery? And why would the whole town be cool with this? Let's actually talk about sources for a quick sec. The main sources here are Latin chronicles of the First Crusade. But as we've talked about before, the Latin sources are a bit varied in their portrayal of events. The three sources that most engage with the Peasants' Crusade in Hungary are Albert of X, also known as Albert of Aachen, Eckhart of Aura, and Guibert of Nogent. Albert is biased towards Peter the Hermit, and his account has some parts that are clearly distorting events in favor of Peter and the rest of the Peasants' Crusade. Meanwhile, Eckhard of Aura, a German chronicler aligned with the Reform Papacy, and Guibert of Nogent, one of the monks who adapted the Gesta Francorum, well, they're both very anti-Peter. Eckhard actually doesn't give many details at all, we'll talk about him at some other point, while Guibert is probably the harshest critic of the Peasants' Crusade. Guibert views the crusade as an endeavor to be carried out by French noblemen. No Germans and no peasants allowed. Accordingly, he describes Peter's army, which had a lot of Germans and a lot of peasants, as a, quote, undisciplined crowd of common people who were like prisoners and slaves, a group of Germans and the dregs of our own people, end quote. By dregs of our own people, he means the French, and his exact phrasing could also be translated as the shit or the scum of our own people. So yeah, he's not pulling any punches here. He's also not very accurate. He attributes the behavior of all the various contingents of the Peasants' Crusade to Peter's force. So, like we talked about back in episode 2.7, we really just have Albert of Aachen to work with here. Anyway, it was now late June, and while Kalman had successfully rid himself of Walter Sansevoir with only a minor incident towards the end, a few days earlier, Peter the Hermit had shown up with his even larger force, Albert of Aachen says that it was around 20,000 people. A good chunk of them were more like pilgrims than combatants, but Peter's force had various knights on hand as well. I can just picture Kalman the Nerd in my mind. Think Coke bottle lens glasses, suspenders, pocket protector, gulping like a fish as a massive force walked up to his frontier. Peter's army was so big that the entire thing was over a mile long as it marched along old Roman roads but they seemed to have been relatively well organized. Where the roads were good, they could cover up to 40 kilometers or 25 miles in one day. Kalman received this new wave of crusaders as magnanimously as he'd received Walter Sansevoir's advance guard. Given what had happened at Zemun, he did remind them that pillaging was a big no-no. And once again, he coordinated the passage of this army across his territory. By the 20th of June, they'd reached Zemun. Here's where the trouble began. Now, apparently, the governor of Zemun was a bit nervous about this huge armed pilgrimage. Albert of Aachen says, This guy's name was Guz, which he may be confusing for a reference to his ethnicity. Historian Stephen Runciman interprets this as meaning that the guy was an Oguz Turk. Whatever the case may be, I'm just going to call him Guz. 
Now, Goose seems to have coordinated a bit of a stricter police force to keep an eye on these troublemakers. He wasn't alone in these efforts. He had set up an alliance with the governor of Belgrade across the river, a guy named Niketas in Greek. Albert calls him Nichita and says he was a Bulgarian prince, but he was really probably more like a Byzantine administrator. Niketas had had his own run-ins with the Crusaders already. We'll get to that. And Guz also had reason to distrust them. After all, 16 of Walter's men had already tried to knock over a marketplace a few weeks earlier. Speaking of those troublemakers, remember that the residents of Zemun had hung their weapons and clothes on the wall of the town to send a message. Well, Peter's army got that message, loud and clear, and they were pissed the fuck off. Now, something I should mention is that Albert of Aachen and other historians writing in Latin call Zemun Malawila. This translates to Evilville. And it's pretty likely that Evilville picked up this name because of what's about to happen here. Actually, Albert's whole description of events is pretty hilariously biased, so I'll quote it for you here. As Peter approached the boundaries of Evilville, a rumor came to his ears and to those of his men that a count of that region, Guz by name, one of the Hungarian king's nobles, corrupted by greed, had assembled a band of armed soldiers and had entered into a very wicked plot with the said duke, who was called Nichita, prince of the Bulgars and ruler of the city of Belgrade, that the duke, having brought together the strength of his accomplices, would vanquish and kill the vanguard of Peter's army, while Guz would pursue and behead the men at the rear of Peter's soldiers, so that they might thus snatch and share between them all the spoils of such a great army in horses, gold, and silver. Hearing this, because the Hungarians and Bulgars were fellow Christians, Peter refused altogether to believe them capable of so great a crime. Until as they approached Evilville, his companions caught sight of the weapons and spoils hanging on the ramparts and walls, which had belonged to Walter's 16 associates, whom the Hungarians had delayed a little while before and had dared to rob by a trick. Then Peter, when he learned of the outrage against his fellow countrymen and saw their weapons and spoils, urged his companions to vengeance. At the signal from the trumpeters, they shouted out bravely and ran together to the ramparts with standards held aloft. They attacked the walls with a hail of arrows, which they shot at the eyes of those standing on the ramparts, with such incessant and extraordinary density that the Hungarians could not withstand the strength of the attacking Gauls, and they turned away from the wall in the hope that they would be able to last out within the city in the face of the enemy troops. At this, a certain Godfrey, commander and standard-bearer of 200 foot soldiers, and a foot soldier himself, vigorous in strength, as he watched the flight of the Hungarians at a distance from the walls, rapidly crossed the ramparts with a ladder, which he found by chance there. Reynold of the castle of Broy, a distinguished knight, who was wearing a helmet and chainmail armor for protection, likewise climbed the walls after Godfrey, until everyone, on horse and on foot, was striving to enter. The Hungarians saw that their lives were in difficulty and threatened by danger, and up to 7,000 of them massed together for the defense. They came out through another gate, which looked to the east, and took up a position on the top of a very high rock, which the Danube flowed past. And from that direction, their defense could not be overcome. The majority of them, who were unable to flee quickly through the gate because of the very narrow approach, fell by the edge of the sword before that very gate. Some who were hoping to find freedom on top of the slope were slaughtered by the pursuing pilgrims. Others who rushed headlong from the peak of the mountain were swallowed up in the waves of the Danube itself, but more slipped away in boats. About 4,000 Hungarians died in that place. As few as a hundred of the pilgrims, apart from those wounded, were killed. After achieving this victory, Peter stayed five days with all of his people in the same fortress of Evilville because of the abundance of food which he found there in grain and flocks of sheep and herds of cattle, and a plentiful supply of drink and an infinite number of horses. End quote. So Albert's account has Peter decide to level this city and kill 4,000 Hungarians because 16 guys got their shit jacked. That's fucking wild. Other sources mentioned that there was an argument over the sale of some shoes that got out of control, and that's what led to the violence. 
Either way, Peter's army thoroughly sacked the city. 4,000 dead Hungarians sounds like an inflated number to me, but I can't find a better number anywhere else. Suffice it to say that they probably killed anyone they could get their hands on. Something else that's in doubt here is whether Peter actually directed this attack, or if it was his men, maybe led by the two named in Albert's account, Godfrey and Reynold. Godfrey and his 200 followers, by the way, are described literally as on foots. Similarly, Reynold is described as an on horse. The exact terms are pedesh and equesh. They are often used in other sources to mean infantry and cavalry, but they might also just literally mean someone on foot or on horse. And they might also be indications of social rank. We'll be talking about social classes in the First Crusade armies in the future, so keep this all in mind. Anyway, after sacking Evilville, I mean Zemun, Peter the Hermit's forces must have been feeling a bit nervous. They didn't stick around too long before crossing the Sava River and heading for Belgrade. We'll catch up with them in the future. It was now the end of June. The days were long, hot, and muggy. Harvest season was still a couple of months off, and everyone was on edge. The crusading armies had already cost the lives of thousands of Hungarians, and Kalman had only been king for a few months, not even a year. But his kingdom had not yet received its full share of armed pilgrims. The First Crusade was far from over. Back in Germany, Peter had enlisted the aid of various local preachers to spread the word and gather up armies of their own. The two most successful of these were two Germans, Gottschalk and Folkmar. Gottschalk had managed to rustle up an army of about 15,000, and he appears to have had close ties to Count Emiko. May his bones be ground to dust. Actually, both Gottschalk and Folkmar seem to have had more of the mass murder spirit that Emiko's forces had displayed in the Rhineland. The forces under Gottschalk, Folkmar, and Emiko are often grouped together as the German Crusade, because their MO and the final fate of their expedition are a bit different from those of Peter and Walter's forces. In Bavaria, on the eastern side of the Holy Roman Empire, Gottschalk's army engaged in the by now well-established First Crusader pastime, persecuting Jews. Meanwhile, Folkmar's army did much the same in Prague. They may have been inspired by news of what Emiko was doing in the Rhineland. This lack of focus and eagerness to run around killing random folks means that, unlike the more direct and controlled march of Walter and Peter's armies, Gottschalk, Folkmar, and trailing way behind them, Emiko, may his bones be ground to dust, traveled by winding paths randomly pausing and even doubling back to engage in bloody pogroms. At the end of June, Folkmar's army left Prague, and on June 30th, they crossed the frontier and came to Nitra, in modern Slovakia, but at that time a frontier city of the Kingdom of Hungary. News of what they had done in nearby Prague and what similar armies had done to Zemun had already reached the residents of Nitra, and they weren't having any of it. They crushed Folkmar's army killing most of them and scattering the rest. And that's the last we hear from Folkmar. Whether he died or was captured or just fled back to Germany, who knows. Meanwhile, Gottschalk entered the Hungarian region of Moson. Moson is now divided up between Austria, Hungary, and Slovakia. The town of Moson has since merged with the neighboring town of Magyarovar, which means Hungarian castle in Hungarian. And this twin city has the unwieldingly long name of <clears throat> Moshomajarovar, known as Ovar to locals and Moshon to foreigners. I'm a foreigner, so I'll call it Moshon. Gachalk's army didn't even bother with the pretense of obeying the law. They were on a holy mission. Anything they did was sanctioned by God. You got a problem with that? Take it up with the big guy. You'll be seeing him pretty soon. Gottschalk's army spread out over the countryside, stealing anything they could find. Wine, oxen, grain. Obviously, the locals weren't happy about this, and conflicts arose. Albert says the crimes were too numerous to recount all of them, but he does make sure to include one to illustrate their nature. During an argument between some of Gottschalk's men and a young Hungarian, they grabbed hold of him and ran a stake through his quote-unquote secret nature by which Albert means his genitals, his junk, his family jewels. 
his dick and balls. These are the kinds of reports that King Kalman the Nerd was getting in early July. By now, he was a bit fed up with this whole First Crusade thing. He just had one of his frontier towns sacked. After providing nothing but aid to first Walter and then Peter. And now these new fuckers were basically pillaging to their heart's content. They were acting like pre-955 Hungarians. So you know what? Fuck these guys. It's time for the revenge of the nerd. Kalman's plan was pretty simple. He had his troops sort of herd Gottschalk's army to a nearby town. And well, I'll let Albert of Aachen finish the story for us. Quote, The royal forces spoke flatteringly to Gottschalk's army as a trick. In this way, a complaint was made to our lord king about the outrages which you have committed in his kingdom. But he thinks you are not guilty of this crime because there are some sensible ones among you. And the violated treaty and vile outrages have troubled you no less than the Lord King himself and his men. Therefore, if you want to make amends to the Lord King and placate the princes of this country, it is necessary and unavoidable that you give up all your weapons into the hands of the Lord King and show that you mean peace in accordance with our advice. If indeed you surrender to the king with all the money you possess, you may calm his anger and thus find favor in his eyes. However, if you do otherwise, not a single one of you will be able to stand before him and his men or continue to live because you insulted him and broke faith so badly in his kingdom. Gottschalk, therefore, and the other sensible men who heard this and believed the words were spoken in good faith, and because the Hungarians were professed Christians, gave their advice to the whole assembly, that in accordance with the speech, they should give up their weapons to make amends to the king, and thus all things would return to a state of peace and goodwill. Everyone agreed to this advice, and gave up hauberks, helmets, all their weapons, and the whole of the money, that is, their means of support on the journey to Jerusalem, all into the hands of the king's officials, and humble and shaking with fear, they bowed their heads before the king, certain of gaining the king's complete mercy and kindness. The king's ministers and soldiers brought all the weapons into a room in the king's palace. The money and the other valuables, as much as the army had accumulated, they put away into the royal treasury. When everyone's weapons had been stowed away thus in the room, all the good faith and mercy, which the Hungarians had promised the king would have for the people, turned out to have been lies. Quite the opposite. They rushed upon them in a cruel massacre, decapitating them, unarmed and weaponless as they were. They inflicted a most savage slaughter upon them. So much so, and those who were present and escaped with difficulty swear this is true, that the whole plain was covered with dead and slaughtered bodies and blood, and few were spared this martyrdom. End quote. Did I do that? Yep, Kalman had them all killed, and I really can't blame them. These pilgrims were nothing but trouble. Still, the pilgrims start coming, and they don't stop 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 coming. Just a few weeks after the massacre of Gottschalk's forces, who else should show up but Count Emiko? May his bones be ground to dust. Oh, uh, sorry, I mean... May his bones be ground to dust. Emigo's forces were larger than Gottschalk's and better armed. And they had already cut their teeth on the massacres we talked about last time. They arrived at the border town of Moshon in mid-July and found the gate to the town shut and the bridge spanning the river Danube raised. Hungary was closed to crusaders. Emigo's forces were persistent though. They began to make plans to forcibly take the city. For six weeks, they traded arrow volleys with the garrison of the city as they constructed a makeshift bridge and siege engines to take the city. This is actually a good indication of what kind of folks were in Emiko's army. There must have been a substantial amount of more professional soldiers because a horde of peasants would have had no idea how to build a bridge or siege engines. By mid-August, they had crossed the river on a bridge of their making and set their siege engines up against the walls of Moshon. The city, and perhaps the entire kingdom of Hungary, 
seemed on the brink of destruction. However, news came that the king of Hungary himself, Kalman, was on his way with a massive force, ready to obliterate them. It's unclear exactly why, but this seems to have spooked many of Emigo's men, and they fled. In the chaos, the garrison of Moshon was able to pursue and kill a good chunk of his forces, destroying what was left of their morale, and making a possible regroup impossible. Emigo himself fled, tail between his legs, back to Germany. Guibert of Nojan, as I mentioned earlier, doesn't really distinguish between the various armies of this first crusading wave. He attributes everything that happened in Hungary to Peter's army, and his description of events is clearly a mishmash of the various armies. But it works pretty well as a summary of the summer's events. He says, quote, While the Hungarians, as Christians to Christians, had generously offered everything for sale, our men willfully and wantonly ignored their hospitality, arbitrarily waging war against them, assuming that they would not resist, but would remain entirely peaceful. In an accursed rage, they burned the public granaries, raped virgins, dishonored many marriage beds by carrying off many women, and tore out or burned the beards of their hosts. None of them now thought of buying what he needed, but instead each man strove for what he could get by theft and murder, boasting with amazing impudence that he would easily do the same to the Turks. On their way, they came to a castle that they could not avoid passing through. It was sighted so that the path allowed no divergence to the right or left. With their usual insolence, they moved to besiege it. But when they had almost captured it, suddenly, for a reason that is no concern of mine, they were overwhelmed. Some died by sword, others were drowned in the river, others, without any money, in abject poverty, deeply ashamed, returned to France. And because this place was called Moshon, and when they returned, they said they had been as far as Moshon, they were greeted with great laughter everywhere. End quote. I should point out that Guibert is making a pun here. The name of the town of Moshon sounds very similar to the French word for harvest, moisson. In the French of the day, this would have been even closer, moisson, something very, very similar to Moshon. You can see, moisson, Moshon. Very, very similar. The joke being that not only did they geographically only make it to Moshon, but that they came back before harvest season. Anyway, it was now mid-August, and life in Hungary was slowly returning to normal. Harvest season would soon begin, and after a bloody summer, the Hungarians could begin to rebuild and recuperate. But mid-August was also the date Pope Urban II had set for his expedition, and as Emigo's men fled westwards, they ran headlong into other forces, following the same path east. In early October, about six weeks after Count Emigo's army had been routed at Moshon, another army showed up at the Hungarian frontier. Godfrey of Bouillon, Duke of Lorraine, future ruler of Jerusalem, seemed at first glance to be no different from Count Emigo. He had also used money extorted from Jewish communities to fund his pilgrimage, and he was following the same route. King Kalman had had enough of these guys. Nevertheless, when Godfrey sent a charismatic ambassador directly to the king's court, Kalman was impressed. He agreed to meet with Godfrey, and maybe they would be able to work something out. But that's a story for another day. The events of the summer of 1096 in Hungary highlight various aspects of the Peasants' Crusade, aspects that will be carried over to the whole of the endeavor when it finally comes together. 1. A lack of supply. Food will be a constant theme throughout the First Crusade. Starvation will be frequent, and many actions will be motivated by the very basic human need to eat. This army is by no means done pillaging peaceful towns and villages. 2. A lack of discipline. Even Peter's forces seem to have gotten a bit unruly. And as for the other armies, they had barely any control, nor did they seem to really want it. For the other potentates they encounter along the way, negotiation with this army will prove impossible, because its leaders couldn't guarantee that the army would play along. Kalman learned this lesson, but he won't be the last to have to do so. And three, revenge. 
many of the members of this army consider their bloody pilgrimage to be a holy mission. Denying this sacred army whatever it wanted was akin to blasphemy, and revenge would be dealt out to those who dared to do so. Revenge was key to the massacres of Jews, who had betrayed Jesus some 1,100 years prior. Yeah, that dish is ice cold by now. But it was also present in Peter's actions, as reported by Albert of Aachen. He says Zeman was sacked to avenge the 16 men who had been robbed of their weapons and clothing. Even if that's not how events actually played out, that's the version that made sense to Albert's sources, who may have been attributing characteristics to their leader because it was more emblematic of their perspective. In short, whether you were a Jew, Christian, or Muslim, you really did not want to cross this army without a weapon to defend yourself close at hand. Because they kind of glossed over the part of the Bible where it had said to turn the other cheek. They knew all about bringing the sword, though. Next time on History of the Uchmer, what's left of the Peasants' Crusade crosses over into the Roman Empire, where the carnage will continue. As soon as they crossed the Sava River and came across Belgrade, Peter's forces decided that sacking one city would not be enough to sate their appetite for destruction. It was now up to Alexios Komnenos to see what benefit he could get out of these rapacious marauders. When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. But what the heck are you supposed to make when life gives you a bunch of bloodthirsty armed pilgrims? Thank you.